You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hey, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I hope everything finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the winter of 2022 and hopefully towards a COVID-free era. Tonight, we are honored to have back in the house John Nichols celebrating the publication of his new book, Hot Off the Presses. It's called Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. It's published by our friends over at Verso Books. John Nichols, in his signature style of courageous reporting, speaking truth to power, unveils the opportunism that was at the heart of the response to the COVID pandemic. So John Nichols is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation Magazine and the author and co-author of more than a dozen books on media and democracy. He is a regular guest on radio and television programs and has been featured in a number of documentaries based on his writing and reporting. A co-founder of the media reform group Free Press, he has twice keynoted world congresses of the International Federation of Journalists. Gore Vidal has said of Mr. Nichols, of all the giant slayers now afoot in the great American desert, John Nichols's sword is the sharpest. Joining him tonight in conversation, we are greatly honored to have with us Congressman Ro Khanna. Ro Khanna has served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from California's 17th Congressional Districts in 2017. He has also served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the United States Department of Commerce under President Barack Obama from August 2009 through August 2011. He is one of only six members of the U.S. House of Representatives and 10 members of Congress who do not take campaign contributions from political action committees. Please join us now in giving a warm welcome to our evening's guest, John Nichols. Congressman Ro Khanna, it is an honor to have you both gracing our virtual halls. Welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you, Peter. Uh, it's uh, certainly my honor to be here with uh, uh, at uh, the virtual City Lights Forum, and thank you for your incredible leadership over the years. It's an honor to be here with one of my favorite writers uh, in the country, a, a true public intellectual, uh, John Nichols. I was telling John that I knew his book would be a success uh, and interesting simply in how he framed it. I mean, what a great idea. You know, you think of Falls of Courage and it's about uh, eight senators who showed courage or a guilty man as he references about the 12 people uh, who were most responsible for appeasement uh, of uh, of the Hitler uh, regime. And John, you know, has this idea to frame this book about who are the people that history will look back at uh, and say, we're the most responsible for the hundreds of thousands of deaths of Americans and the deaths around the world, many of which, if you read this, could be prevented. And he tells the historical story. There's so many ways you could go telling that story, but he tells it in these short vignettes of 18 
uh, individuals who really are responsible. And I just thought the framing is wonderful. You want to get the book, just it's a quick read. It's and it's a and it's an insightful read. And it's uh, it's hard because it's it's not just going over something you could read in the Times of the Nation. I mean, it's really filled with insight, and and the framing is so powerful. And John, I want to start out with that framing because what intrigued me is that you talk about justice as being more than just accountability, more than just criminal sanctions, that you're in search of something deeper than kind of uh, vengeance or, or, or a retribution or uh, people getting their just commutants. Uh, what is the animating spirit behind why you're writing this and why you think uh, there needs to be accountability? Well, thank you for that great question, Ro, and, and, and thank you, uh, Congressman Khanna, for joining us tonight and also for being uh, somebody who I could write about positively in the book. Um, there were so many people who were bad players along the way uh, that it's, it, it is important to note that there were good players. There were people who, who got it right, and, uh, and before I answer your great question, let me also recognize that uh, one of the heroes of the book, Amy Hanauer, uh, is joining us tonight, and I write about the work that she and others did to expose the billionaire profiteering off this, and Amy uh, working with Americans for Tax Fairness and, and, and other groups. Uh, and then uh, also, I think, I hope I'm not mistaken here, that I believe our, our friend Rebecca Solnit, who I uh, mentioned in the book as well, uh, is with us. And so we're very honored to have friends and, and comrades join us uh, tonight. And so to your, to your question, uh, when I set out to write the book, I was hoping that it wouldn't be necessary. And, uh, and yet I was pretty sure it would be. And so as I reported, and I talked to you, Congressman, I talked to Amy and other people along the way, um, and, and as I did the interviews, I always kept an extra file of uh, the stuff that I would put in a book if, I, if it had to be done. And the understanding was that the book would have to be done if we ended up like we always ended up. And that is that uh, you have a crisis and the political leaders who should take care of us and the economic leaders who should be responsible aren't. And so as a result, we end up in a situation where instead of dealing with the crisis appropriately, we uh, end up with hundreds of thousands of deaths, millions of illnesses, huge numbers of people economically dislocated, all the harm that might come from it. And this is what Naomi Klein refers to as uh, disaster capitalism, right? The shock doctrine. And going into this, I feared that we were going to end up there, and I have no question that we did. But if we understand those systems, right, if we understand that there are structural problems, structural flaws that lead us to end up in this situation again and again, then our motivation can't just be pure punishment. We can't say, oh, I'd like to see Donald Trump in jail. Uh, although, to be honest, there were actions that he took that, to my mind, are absolutely criminal. Or simply, I'd like to see um, you know, Jeff Bezos sued for uh, how Amazon Air warehouses operated, or you know, all these things. And I don't dismiss that sort of accountability. I think it's appropriate where you see actual wrongdoing 
to have criminal and civil liability. But I also think that there has to be something bigger, something far more important. And that is societal accountability, where we recognize as a society that because of the actions of our leaders and because of the actions of uh, economic elites, we ended up in a far worse situation that we, than we needed to be in. We ended up with hundreds of thousands of people dying that needed, need not have died with millions of people getting sick that need not have gotten sick, with tens of millions of people suffering economic challenges and crises that need not have happened. And if we understand it that way, then accountability has to have as its motivation change. And as I write in the book, I believe the lesson of uh, how Franklin Roosevelt handled the people who were responsible for some of the worst aspects of the Great Depression, how the authors of Guilty Men dealt with appeasers at the start of World War II. That's really vital because it doesn't just punish someone, it holds the system to account and says the system must change so that we never end up in this position again. I appreciate that, John. And obviously the book has this animating uh, philosophy and, and, and search for accountability and change, but it also really it gets into the details of people's stories. I was moved uh, by the, the story you start out with of uh, a young man about my age uh, uh, and, uh, you know, father of eight uh, who uh, basically is forced to go into work uh, to do some routine manufacturing. It didn't strike me. You could tell the story more that that was absolutely essential, but he was uh, told that he had to go in. No, no, no. PPE and uh, you know this man, man. You know, you end with sort of his mother saying, uh, "I didn't even get to say goodbye to him." Uh, talk about that story, uh, the impact it had on you, and how it uh, uh, played into to shaping the book. Sure, and and thank you for that question, Ro, because that's uh, it's funny. Uh, I've done a few interviews, a uh, lengthy conversation with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now about the book. Uh, and some others since then. And people have again and again focused in on that story of this gentleman. His name was Mike Jackson. And uh, in every chapter of the book, I try to find an individual who died or who became very, very sick as a result of COVID. And then I try to trace back who in a position of power could have saved that life, whose actions, uh, be they political or economic, could have made sure that that person didn't die. And unfortunately, it's quite easy to find the guilty men, the guilty women along the way. But in the case of Mike Jackson, uh, he's from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or he was from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, he had a large family. He worked at a Briggs and Stratton plant and he made uh, lawn care products. So he, he made, uh, I think it was leaf blowers and, and things of that nature, which was deemed essential. Now, if you know anything about Wisconsin in the winter, uh, you don't really need a leaf blower all that badly or, or lawn care products, but uh, this corporation was uh, still operating, having its workers come in. And Mike Jackson, uh, who was involved with the Steelworkers Union, uh, raised concerns. He said, look, this, isn't, this place isn't safe. Even in March of 2020, when the pandemic was just hitting, he said, he and others complained. They said, we don't have screens between us. We work looking at other workers, and we don't have protections there. Uh, we don't have proper gear within this workplace. And so as a result, um, we feel unsafe. 
And the company did not respond at anywhere near the level that it should have. Um, and Mike Jackson got sick and he, uh, he left, he was walked out uh, of the factory one day and went home and he wasn't feeling very well, uh, but he came back to work uh, because he, as his mother said and others, he felt that if he missed work, he might lose his job. And the company was giving no indication, it wasn't providing an indication that uh, you'd be secure in your work. We eventually moved to that in a lot of settings, but at that early stage, he felt that he had to go to work and he wasn't alone. He was one of millions of people across this country in uh, dangerous jobs who went to work. Well, he did go back and he ultimately collapsed at his machine, went to the hospital and died. And um, he might well have just been another story, but there are some incredible groups in Milwaukee uh, that I write about, uh, Voces de la Frontera and other groups that work with uh, uh, factory workers, immigrants, as well as uh, folks born in the States, uh, trying to make sure that they're protected in their workplace. And they took the story of Mike Jackson and made it central to their advocacy for safer workplaces, uh, not just taking on corporations, but also taking on the government itself and saying, you must put regulations in to protect. And so while Mike Jackson died, um, his story became a really powerful part of a lot of the activism that was related to the pandemic. And it's important to note that um, Mike Jackson's story became a big part of a debate about liability. And uh, Mitch McConnell held up a COVID bill for the better part of six months because he wanted to have a liability shield for corporations uh, on the argument that, uh, that if you had, didn't protect corporations, they wouldn't be able to do their bidding. They wouldn't be able to do their business and the economy couldn't reopen. Uh, he was wrong about that. Uh, economists said he was wrong. Consumer activists said he was wrong. Labor activists said he was wrong. But uh, Mike Jackson's family stepped up and said, look, you know, you're talking about creating a shield that says that companies shouldn't be held to responsible in situations like what happened to our brother, our father, our, our husband. And, and that is that, you know, he died because he wasn't protected and there ought to be accountability for that. And so uh, I tell the story of Mike Jackson as I do a number of other people throughout the book to begin a conversation about not just what went wrong, but who could have intervened and done, done right. And also about what accountability should look like. So often when we talk about accountability, we talk about an individual uh, going into court or something like that, but there ought to be a deeper accountability that says that when we have a crisis like this, there are ways in which we can protect workers and consumers so that we don't have the level of death that we did. I wanna get into Donald Trump and Mike Pence and all of the vignettes, but one of the things that struck me after Mike Johnson and what you're saying now is, could Congress have done something earlier? I mean, was there too much delay in passing extended unemployment or uh, calling for uh, it, temporary shutdown. What what could Congress have done? How how quick were we in Congress, and uh, and, and how much do you attribute to sort of a delay or uh, inadequate action in Congress? Well, I think there was there was a lot that that went wrong with Congress, uh, and and it's pretty rare that a, a member of Congress asks you know whether we whether Congress screwed up, um, and. The fact is that Congress moved pretty quickly and in a bipartisan way on some initial relief bills. 
but where uh, Congress did not step up was in that that regulation of corporations and in uh, it, clearly there was a crisis with what um, McConnell did to hold up the second COVID bill and demanding that there be that liability shield. That was a deeply, deeply troubling and, and damaging uh, failure on his part. That's a failure I think that you have to extend beyond McConnell to his party uh, because uh, there was obviously he was leading a caucus that held the bill up. And so we could point to that. We could point to a lot of other areas. But in fairness, uh, and I'm not trying to let you off the hook here, there were uh, some members of Congress, including yourself, who did step up and who actually suggested bold responses, uh, including the idea of a lockdown similar to what you saw in New Zealand, which almost certainly would have saved hundreds of thousands, perhaps even more lives. Uh, and uh, that didn't happen. And so clearly, Congress did not move as aggressively as some of its best members proposed. Uh, the final thing I'd say in this regard, though, is, and as I deal with in the book, the, the greatest crisis came uh, within the regulatory state that we've already developed. And that is that members of Donald Trump's cabinet failed to intervene at critical stages where they could have saved immense numbers of lives uh, and, and prevented a, a great deal of suffering. And so uh, well, I would have liked to see Congress do more, and I could talk about that at, at, at great length. The truth of the matter is it was on the executive side where I think we saw some of the greatest crimes. So let's get into the, that. Uh, you start out in the first couple chapters with uh, discussing uh, what are you would call, I think, Trump's crimes and, and even Pence. I mean, you're pretty harsh on Pence. You don't, uh, uh, don't give him a pass. Uh, let me push you on this and say, you know, how do you distinguish their actions uh, or do you from uh, errors of political judgment? Uh, are these worse than sort of George W. Bush saying, go, go to Iraq in a, in a war? Uh, is this just terrible political judgment? Uh, or are you saying, no, this, this goes beyond that uh, and there's criminal activity? Or maybe you think even in the Bush case, there was criminal activity. Where is the line and how do you uh, see both Trump and Pence in that? Yeah, I think uh, I was a pretty big critic of, of George W. Bush uh, and of Dick Cheney. So I, I would say that, that uh, I wouldn't necessarily separate their wrongs from, from what Trump did. They were in different categories, obviously, but still this, this uh, core challenge. And um, what I would say is that with any president, and any member of an administration, they will make mistakes. There is simply no question of that. We expect those mistakes to be made. But where I saw in Donald Trump uh, uh, something that went far beyond that was that he acknowledged again and again that his actions were deliberately intended to lie to the American people. Uh, he told Bob Woodward that he downplayed the pandemic and then when you look at it, you look at his own quotes, his own statements, and you certainly look at his actions. And it was clear that he made a judgment early on that his political future would be better protected, better preserved, if he could downplay the pandemic and ultimately rush a reopening uh, at way before it was a good idea, um, that somehow he'd come out ahead politically. And uh, 
again, this is stuff he said to Bob Woodward. It's not stuff that I came up with. The other thing about Donald Trump and, and many of the people in his administration was that they moved immediately toward their political agendas. And what I mean by that is, uh, to give the example of Betsy DeVos at uh, the Department of Education, when there was the debate about reopening schools, the teachers union stepped up and said, look, we know there are ways to reopen schools and to do it right. We want to work with you. Uh, Betsy DeVos said, no, 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 they're being too resistant to reopening. Uh, maybe we should just move the money over to private schools. Well, I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. That's what Betsy DeVos has been working on for decades. She's poured a huge part of her fortune into that. And so instead of working with the people who wanted to see a good way through the pandemic to the best way possible, her immediate response was to go to politics. And you saw this again and again in members of the Trump administration. They put their political agendas and they put their own political advancement ahead of saving lives. And, and to my mind, that's unforgivable. It's unforgivable for them. They, they should be remembered for that always, for how they handled it. And this certainly goes for Trump. But it's also something that's unforgivable systemically. We ought to look at that and say, how can we make sure that, that never again do we have a president who does what Donald Trump did, who has the information, who knows how serious the crisis will be, and yet who chooses to lie to us, who chooses to take actions, political actions and others that make a crisis worse. And that's something we ought to be asking ourselves at a fundamental level. It's why I argue that we ought to have a contemporary equivalent of a PCORA commission that looks into uh, how this was handled and gets very, very serious about uh, A, identifying the wrongdoing, uh, holding those to account who can and should be held to account, but B, driving those policies that will make sure we never end up in this position again. You talk about uh, the cabinet all having their ideological uh, agenda, and I was uh, struck by the caricature of, of, of Mike Pompeo. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was almost uh, hard to believe that he actually would uh, do the things you discuss, where there's this group of uh, 200, I think, Cuban doctors who are, uh, by all accounts, uh, professionals, thoughtful, uh, helping to tackle COVID, and Pompeo basically refuses to even engage with them, as I understood it, uh, just because he's anti-communist and he can't get himself to, to look past that. And it's, he's, he's caught and blinded uh, by his own worldview. Uh, well, that's exactly that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, no, and I mean, this is an area, Ro, that, or Congressman, that you've worked in so much on, on trying to develop a new foreign policy, right? A realistic foreign policy that, that acknowledges there may be people we disagree with, but that doesn't mean we can't cooperate with them. That doesn't mean we can't find uh, ways to uh, get to uh, something that helps the great mass of people. And uh, Pompeo really served as an example of this because essentially his response to uh, COVID was a Cold War response. It was uh, that I have my political agenda and I am unwilling to move beyond that agenda for reasons of politics. And as regards to the Cubans, here's a fascinating thing. Very early on, I, well, I should go back a step further. As Barack Obama and others have said, uh, you can disagree with Cuba on particular issues, but one thing you can't disagree with is that they've created a, a system to train doctors and to get doctors around the world who can, can do a lot of good and who in fact do do a lot of good. And so 
that's well known internationally. And when COVID hit, countries around the world started appealing to the Cubans and saying, you know, can you send doctors? It was as, it was as simple as that. They were they were pleased, and and it was from all over the world, including uh, in Italy, where one of the first where hospitals were overwhelmed initially, and it was really a devastating situation. Their doctors were getting sick, their nurses were getting sick. And so they said, you know, look, can you help us? And the Cubans responded, they sent doctors. And I, I reviewed the data on this. I reviewed the videos of the doctors arriving at, at airports where the medical personnel from the countries they were arriving in literally broke into tears and, and were, you know, just, they were hugging and, you know, this was, it was, it was like this moment of, of great uh, hope and, and I would argue, you know, solidarity. Uh, and there's a wonderful video of when the doctors arrived in Jamaica. There's also uh, all sorts of uh, wonderful, uh, you know, recountings of what occurred in Italy and other places around the world. Well, Mike Pompeo's response to this uh, was to tell governments that they should turn the Cuban doctors away and uh, to write letters, to exercise diplomatic pressure to say, um, you shouldn't be, don't, don't interact with them, don't have them there. And to you know, basically campaign against letting uh, countries and having countries use or have Cuban medical personnel on the ground to try and fight COVID. Uh, it was so absurd and, and so deeply troubling that, uh, that you know, obviously I, I wrote about it but a lot of other people did around the world. It, it really was, here you had this moment where the United States could have gotten on the right side of the fight against COVID and said, look, we disagree with Cuba, but boy, we're glad that personnel are coming in to, to help save lives. And instead, uh, the U.S. sent a terrible message. And, and as regards Mike Pompeo, he did this again and again and again, repeatedly intervened in ways that put the United States on the wrong side of a global effort to, to fight against COVID. And that haunts us to this day in, in many of the debates about you know, vaccine uh, solidarity and, and you know, sharing the ability of wealthy countries to deal with this disease with countries that are not so wealthy. And you know, it's writ large against uh, uh, Pompeo. We could spend a whole evening talking about him. He's one of, my, uh, one of the, the, the real targets of the book, if you will. Well, it's almost it was a symbol beyond COVID of uh, sort of the uh, blinders towards human rights that the anti-communist Cold War politics worldview had around around the world. And this was sort of the most egregious uh, case uh, of, of what Pompeo did. Uh, you're, you, you go after uh, uh, Democrats, certain Democrats as well, and, uh, and, uh, and, and certain corporations. So you're not, this is not a a partisan book. I mean, it's just factual that a lot of Republicans were in charge. But I wanted to focus on two of the Republicans because you don't spare Pence or DeSantis. And other than Donald Trump, they're two people who could emerge as a, a Republican candidates for president in the future. What is your, uh, in a nutshell, what do you argue is the main guilt? Why are they part of the, the guilty men and, and, and women? Uh, so DeSantis as an example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I do look at a lot of the governors because uh, that was, you know, we, we have a system where you get different responses to a crisis based on what state you're in. And I was very, very struck by, uh, by a number of the governors and how they responded. And some did very well. Remember, this is the amazing thing uh, that 
there were Republican governors who did a great job. Uh, talk about, talk about one who I know you single out Nome and, and, and DeSantis on the negative, but why don't you also talk about in contrast one or two Republicans who did who you thought did well? Oh, yeah. The governor of Vermont, who's a Republican, uh, did a fantastic job. I, I shouldn't say fantastic. A friend, an acquaintance of mine ran against him for governor during the course of, of 2020 and got beat very badly. Um, but uh, uh, look, the, the governor of Vermont it t- treated COVID seriously. They have incredibly high level of uh, vaccination. They did mask wearing, social distancing. The, the governor of uh, Maryland, who is a you know a, a centrist Republican did a, a a very good job by most accounts. I mean, there's criticism all along the way. Uh, I think you can even say that Mike DeWine, the, the governor of Ohio, um, and yeah, earlier I mentioned my my friend Amy Hanauer from uh, Citizens for Tax and Justice is with us tonight, and she was in Ohio for years, um, and uh, and she battled Mike DeWine on all sorts of issues. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, I think he took COVID pretty seriously and not perfect. There's there's areas where I'd criticism, criticize. But I, I think this is an important thing to understand. There were Republican governors who uh, did their best to rise above politics and to recognize the crisis. And then there were governors who didn't. And, my, and Ron DeSantis is a, a classic example of this. Uh, Ron DeSantis just was brutal from day one. Uh, his approach to it was hyper-politicized. And Ron DeSantis is a very, you know, he's, a, he's a very smart man. He's well-educated. He knew what he was doing. And, and the bottom line was he was making this a political, uh, a political move on his part. And the thing that I write about a lot in it is, A, uh, his, his incredibly brutal approach to teachers and, and to the schools, his demands that they reopen, his demands that they uh, not have protocols and masking mandates and things like that, uh, which was, was particularly troublesome. But um, the other thing I write about is uh, this incredibly hypocritical and cynical response to this uh, crisis, because generally we're told that Republicans favor local control. They think that uh, that it's best to you know give power back to local school boards and to local governments. But Ron DeSantis moved brutally and again and again and again to undermine the ability of local governments to uh, to protect their people, and uh, literally to the point of uh, with school boards threatening to uh, you know lead the charge to remove school board members who didn't. Uh, do what he wanted them to do, which was to not put in uh, mass mandates, to not put in protections. And so I, 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 again and again, I guess if there's a, a sub-theme of the book, it is that people died across this country because politicians decided to play politics with a public health crisis. And DeSantis is a, a classic example of it. So is Governor Nome out in uh, South Dakota. And her response uh, was almost surreal. Uh, she was, I think it's fair to say, very close to celebratory about uh, her refusal to uh, implement mandates to take the basic steps to protect people. And, uh, and she turned this into a theme that she's used as a potential presidential candidate, but it was devastating in South Dakota. And I read a lot about what happened in the meatpacking industry out there. In the meatpacking industry, uh, there was a, 
obviously this is considered an essential industry. Uh, a lot of people went to work. The meatpacking plants, especially in the Dakotas, uh, are the workers are in many, many cases immigrants. Um, and uh, they are people who are not in the, always in the best economic circumstance. And so they needed those jobs badly. Um, they came into work uh, sometimes as they got sicker and sicker. And I write about uh, folks who, who, you know, felt that they had no choice but to go to work and they died. And, and the bottom line of it is that uh, there were people in South Dakota who were pleading to, you know, shut the meatpacking plants down to, to make, a, make at least some intervention to, to make sure they were safe. And there are other people in other situations there pleading not to have, you know, big motorcycle rallies at Sturgis and things like that. And again and again, Governor Nome uh, chose the, the, uh, the political messaging path, if, for lack of a better term, and said, nope, we're not going to limit that. People have the freedom to, to do as they choose. Well, the bottom line is, as I write in the book, there are an awful lot of nurses uh, and uh, teachers and meatpacking plant workers and, and you know, restaurant workers in, in places who didn't really have a choice for economic reasons. And in some cases, because they really believed they had a duty to society, they went and did their jobs and they should have been protected by their government and by the, the companies they worked for, and they weren't. And so uh, I, I'm pretty damning in my assessment of, of those governors who uh, failed people and especially failed some of the most vulnerable workers in this country. And, and if I can just say something very, very bluntly, the, the line that we got at the start of the pandemic was, we're all in this together and there's gonna be shared sacrifice. Well, the bottom line is uh, we weren't all in it together. There wasn't shared sacrifice. There were very, very wealthy people who benefited tremendously. There were politicians who advanced themselves in all sorts of ways. But there are a lot of working class people, poor folks, who felt they had a duty to go to work and who did go to work and who did end up in very, very difficult situations. And a lot of them died. And the bottom line is they did not have to die. And that's why we talk about accountability. Well, well said. How, as a student of history, and I know you're a astute student of history, how unique uh, is this moment where you have politicians literally putting their political careers ahead of a crisis? I mean, did this happen during the Spanish flu? Did it happen during the world wars? Has it happened at other times? Is it just, you know, as Twain said, America has a criminal class and that's in Congress and this is just the nature of politicians uh, of a certain sort? Or was this something that actually defied a lot of American history and was particularly egregious? That's a very good question. I write a lot about that in the book uh, because we have had a pandemic before. In fact, uh, to give a quick anecdote, when uh, coronavirus hit, I was talking to my mom, who's 91 years old. And uh, I said, mom, you're going to wear your mask and do all that stuff. And she said, yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, but I've seen it all before. And I was like, mom, come on. You know, this is kind of overwhelming. And she says, she says, oh, no, 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 your Aunt Carrie, they handed her out the back window uh, when they quarantined the house so that she wouldn't be in the house with everybody who had the Spanish flu. And, and I remember when I was a little girl, obviously she wasn't around for the Spanish flu. So I remember when I was a little girl, we had to, um, you know, 
deliver food to people's houses uh, and then run away to make sure that we didn't get, you know, this ailment and stuff like this. And she started going through all these things. And, and I was like, you know, maybe my mom was just kind of getting a little, you know, she's, you know, maybe just making things up, saying things. I, you know, I can't, my mom, I can't, you know, come on. And then I look back at the, at the history. And in fact, there was a series of pandemics that went through Southwestern Wisconsin where she was grown up as a little kid and she had indeed experienced these things. And so it was through that that I started really reading a lot of the history and looking at it. And the fact is there were anti-maskers in 1918. And uh, when we had the, the Spanish flu or the so-called Spanish flu, there were certainly people who were resistant along the way, but they were such outliers. And the fact of the matter is they had no political support. They, they didn't have media platforms that amplified their madness. They, they might buy an ad in a newspaper or appear at an event, but it was very, very different. And the fact of the matter is that, that what's happened with COVID is a, a real warning, I think, about where we stand today as a society. Uh, it has to do with the change of our media system, it has to do with the change of our politics. And we have entered into a period where it, it really is possible for bad players to uh, literally turn a huge portion of the American people against their own self-interest, to literally uh, convince millions of people that they shouldn't wear a mask, that they shouldn't get a vaccination, that they shouldn't take care of their neighbors and their friends and do and do the right thing for people who have, you know, immunocompromised uh, children or something like that. Uh, and, and it is, it is a, a, a dark expression of the moment in which we live. And, and look, I'm a very hopeful person. I'm really a very optimistic person. But I will tell you that if we don't have accountability for what happened during the first years and what continues to happen in some ways during this pandemic, then we're going to enter into a period where politicians are and business leaders are going to see themselves as having immense freedom to respond to the worst sort of crises in, in the darkest of all ways, in the most self-serving of all ways. Now, I say that in full knowledge that Naomi Klein wrote The Shock Doctrine and taught us about disaster capitalism and told us that there was a response to uh, the economic meltdown of 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, uh, that was awful and, and incredibly damaging. Uh, and I'm certainly aware that, you know, Richard Nixon didn't get put in jail. He got on a plane and flew back to San Clemente, that, you know, Ronald Reagan wasn't held to account for Iran-Contra, that George W. Bush and, and Dick Cheney were held to account for the lies about the Iraq war. So we have a lot of history of politicians getting away with and doing the wrong thing. I know all that, but boy, when we put that into the context of a public health crisis and we have politicians and businesses that seek to exploit that crisis in their own self-interest, even when they know, as Donald Trump did, that hundreds of thousands of people would die. Because there was a memo in the White House back in February of 2020 that talked about the level of death. Even when he knew that, he still chose politics over human life. And I, I think at some fundamental level, that's why, to my mind, that's why the accountability issue becomes so vital. We don't hold these people to account simply because we're mad at them or simply because we don't like them. 
we hold them to account because we as a society cannot afford to have this be the template for the future. We can't afford to have impunity of this level as regards public health become uh, just our watchword, our model. If we do, uh, we'll be hit with another pandemic and it'll be worse than this one. That's so powerfully put. Uh, I could ask you so many more questions. I want to ask two brief ones because I see we're we're running out of time, and I uh, want to get time if there are any chat. Peter, I don't know if we want to take any of those questions. Uh, you know, you write in the book. We can spend a half hour in each chapter. I uh, we want to ask. I want to ask you about Andrew, Andrew Cuomo, but I just want people to know that you're. It's not that you uh, uh, just single out uh, the Republicans, and part of your concern with Cuomo is not so much his decision. To send people back to the nursing home, to nursing homes, but his total obfuscation, lying about uh, about that decision. I thought it was very well documented and very interesting uh, chapter. But I want to ask uh, uh, this question about Pfizer because so much of uh, the, the press around Pfizer, the sentiment around Pfizer is, "Wow, they uh, got this vaccine. They they didn't take the the, the government contract. They didn't take the government money. They did have the purchase agreement. And they developed all this and." Uh, they're one of the good guys. You say no, they're not. They've got some uh, accountability and answers. Why, why, why do you make that case? And uh, what at the heart of it is your biggest beef with, with Pfizer? Well, it's not just Pfizer. It's the pharmaceutical companies in general. Uh, and I, I cite Pfizer for reasons that, uh, you know, we could go into it at a much higher level. But, you know, the one thing I'll, I'll tell you is that uh, this is just a reality. Pharmaceutical companies don't particularly like doing vaccines. Uh, vaccines are not uh, as uh, historically have not been as profitable as, as some other drugs, because if you've got a drug that somebody's got to take every day, um, that's that's obviously, you know, if you're in the for profit pharmaceutical uh, game, uh, that's much more appealing than some than some just shot that that everybody gets. And so uh, the pharmaceutical companies got a lot of inducements to uh, engage on this issue. And uh, they were portrayed as very, very heroic. But it's very, it's important to understand that uh, the U.S. government and international bodies uh, worked very, very hard to get the information to do immense amounts of the research. Uh, The pharmaceutical companies did come in and they did some research of their own and they worked on some of these things. But they weren't necessarily, you know, these great, you know, kind of uh, like superhumans who did these heroic things. They were, they were benefiting from a lot of what government did. And uh, they have made immense profits uh, by one measure. The pharmaceutical companies, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and some of their, their partners uh, have been making $1,000 a second, $65,000 a minute, $93 million a day banking that from, from their, their great service to humanity. So this is they're they're becoming incredibly rich. They they each time that they anticipate their earnings for a period, it turns out that they make more. Uh, the the vaccines have been incredibly profitable for the pharmaceutical companies, and yet they have resisted efforts to address vaccine apartheid. They have resisted efforts to make sure that we share our knowledge and assure that people around the world have access to the vaccines that they desperately need. And this has been a, a, a brutal battle. The Biden administration has actually taken a, a reasonably good stand on this, but uh, we still have not 
uh, overcome the resistance of the pharmaceutical companies to making sure that people around the world have access to the vaccines. And until that happens, until that happens, as we go through this, we're doing this on Zoom because we're, we're in the midst of a Omicron uh, surge and another variant coming in. Well, you know, we're going to keep cha- facing these challenges until we vaccinate the world, until we make sure that, that everybody has access. And yet the pharmaceutical companies have been resistant to this. So I write a lot about uh, Pfizer and, as an example, but the truth of the matter is that, uh, and, I, and I also write about Pfizer because they opted out of some of the, the constraints on, on profiteering uh, for reasons that have turned out to be very beneficial to them. So I, I'm you know, not very generous to them, but I would tell you that this is a deeper problem with the pharmaceutical companies and one that, again, we get to this reality of a systemic challenge. And I'll remind you, and I write about this some in the book, that when Franklin Roosevelt was president, we were facing the immense challenge, uh, challenges that we faced during World War II. The Roosevelt administration uh, very openly and proudly talked about taxing excess profits. And they said, no, you, you can't make this kind of money uh, in this period because we are all in it together. We are fighting against fascism. And so, you know, you're going to have a certain level of profit, not more than that. Uh, that has been almost lost to history. And again, if we're going to talk about accountability, uh, I want to tax billionaires a lot. And I want to uh, make sure that corporations don't make excess profits. And I think we can fairly say that in, in this period, the pharmaceutical companies are doing that. I glanced through some of the chat. Uh, I, I want to get to that first. I want to uh, just highly recommend to folks that they actually get the book, get it online. Uh, I think it expresses all of our anger that we felt with uh, it, so many different people, but it uh, has a factual record behind it, the research behind it, and it's a quick read. And so if you, anyone wants to know why are you so upset at so many people on COVID, you just hand them John's book and you say, here, this is this is why I'm upset. Uh, let me ask you uh, this, and then I'll I'll end with one of the questions actually that is in the chat. Uh, and, the, and this one's a little more provocative. It's, you're, you know, it's now one year into the Biden administration, you're asked to write an epilogue. Uh, do you add anyone uh, from the Biden administration in the guilty men and it, or women? And if you don't add anyone to that high standard, uh, are there people you add in saying, wow, they really, they didn't, they didn't measure up? Um, I've, I've had this question a few times since this began, and, and as you well note, uh, I have pointed to uh, Demo- I have chapters on Democrats in the book who failed us. And, uh, and so while I wouldn't necessarily point to individuals, although I think there will be individuals within the Biden administration uh, who end up, you know, who might well make it into an epilogue, I will say this. One of the th- things that I do try to do in the book is acknowledge that there are people who make mistakes and that is very, very different from people who, for uh, you know, intentional and deliberate reasons, do the wrong thing. And I think that that when Joe Biden came into the White House, uh, that was one of the big shifts. And and I write about it some of the book because I was able to finish the book after the the change of administrations. And for instance, you know, we talk about uh, Elaine Chao, who is the Secretary of Transportation under under Donald Trump she would not issue mask mandates for public transportation. As soon as Biden came in, those mandates were issued. And so there was a change. 
And I, I give great credit there. But I also respect your question. And I will say this. I think that the Biden administration, uh, once it came in and did a lot of good things and put a lot of people, good people into key positions, took its eye off the prize, you know, took its eye off uh, what needed to be done. And the Biden administration has not been as aggressive as it should have been, as it should be in making sure that we have domestic protect, domestic production of um, the all of the tools and all of the protective gear that we need because this pandemic isn't over. And so as a result, uh, I think when Omicron came, it was quite clear that uh, the Biden administration had not been doing as much as it should to prepare for another surge. And I think that that's something that, that we should be very conscious of. I also think finally that, uh, that the Biden administration really should be taking much more seriously a lot of the things we've been talking about here. I think that there, there does need to be a, a new approach to the pharmaceutical companies and one that, that holds them to account, that is far more aggressive in, uh, in making them uh, contribute rather than, than simply profit off this. I also think that the Biden administration is perhaps, and in fact, I can tell you, is far more cautious than I would be as regards taxing billionaires. The fact of the matter is that billionaires came into this, uh, this crisis uh, our, our billionaires control about three, if I'm right about this, roughly $3 trillion in wealth. Today, they've got $5 trillion. I mean, they just they had an exponential increase in their, in their circumstance, in their, their position. And, and you have to ask yourself, you know, you said to that, that nurse, put your mask on, go into that hospital, save lives. And she did, Right. And then you look at the billionaire who retreated to their lakefront or their oceanfront villa or to their country home. And, and what did they do? They turned their computer on, started moving money around, took advantage of, of the situations that they were in. If you're, you, know, you run a warehouse someplace, you fire the people who are whistleblowers, as happened with Amazon. You bust unions or you, you try and you know, keep unions from coming in. And, and then, you know, you, you tote up all your wealth and you decide that you're going to go fly off to outer space, right? I mean, that's, that's what, what our billionaires did. And, and the fact of the matter is, if I was Joe Biden, I would say, I got a really good way to pay for the Build Back Better plan. I'm going to tax billionaires for, you know, one-time tax, be very, very generous here, just one-time tax. I'm going to tax them back to where they were at the start of the pandemic. Not going to take away all their wealth. They're still going to live in you know, lovely lives and all that. But I'm going to take all that money they made during the pandemic. I'm going to move that $2 trillion over to paying for Build Back Better. We'd be well down the track right there. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you want, to, want me to spend some time talking about what I think Joe Biden could do better? I'd be delighted to do it, but I don't want to cheat the questions. I think a billionaire's tax sounds good to me. I think. It's All right, there you go. We're, we're, and I noticed, by the way, that the way my screen is set up, that uh, Amy Hanauer, who I've mentioned a couple times from Citizens for Tax Justice, is right over your shoulder. And I can tell you that she, too, is smiling at, at this point. Let's end on this note. Actually, one of the people put this in the chat. Uh, and that is, uh, yes, there is going to be the historical record that you're writing, really a historical account 
of the pandemic and something that could be like guilty man of, of its time. I mean, uh, it really has that potential. You never know what book becomes a theory of justice and what doesn't, but this is a book that really could be seen as uh, a historical account. But uh, look, one of the people said, what, what more, I mean, we could end this, what more can we do other than just having a historical accountability? Is there something, yes, we talked about the changing of systems. We talked about the, the philosophy. We talked about historical accountability, but some people also do want just basic justice and, uh, and actual accountability for these guilty individuals. What, what more can be done uh, on that regard? So, uh, Congressman, you've, you've several times mentioned the book Guilty Men, which you know about and which I know about, but which uh, maybe not everybody uh, on, on the, this, this uh, stream uh, is aware of. And, and in, back in uh, 1940, um, after England entered World War II and it became clear that Germany was going to attack England, Michael Foote and uh, several other journalists wrote a book called Guilty Men, and it identified the, the people who had appeased Hitler during the 1930s. And it said, these folks shouldn't be in politics anymore. They, you know, they should be, there should be electoral accountability. There should be political accountability. They should be written out of our, our political history. They should never be allowed to do this again. And so that's one of my reference points for the book. The other reference point is something that Franklin Roosevelt uh, did and, and other Democrats uh, and Republicans did uh, after the Great Depression hit. And, uh, in, in 1932, uh, a Senate committee was uh, charged with looking at whether anybody was responsible for the Great Depression, right? And of course, we treat depressions a little bit like we treat uh, public health scares. We say, well, this is just a natural phenomenon. It happened. We don't know how it happened. Nobody can be guilty. Nobody can be you know, charged with wrongdoing. Uh, we just have to move forward and move on to the next thing. Now, that's great for you know, crooked politicians and billionaires, right? But it's really bad for the rest of us. And uh, so what Roosevelt did, uh, and I shouldn't say what Roosevelt did, it's what the Senate did, and Roosevelt as president was very supportive of this, was they decided, no, there might actually be some people who were bad players going into the depression and who made it worse than it needed to be. Maybe it was a global phenomenon that we couldn't totally control, but there were people who did bad things. And, um, and they did a fascinating thing. They hired uh, a lawyer who had prosecuted mobsters. They didn't hire some, you know, financial, cons- you know, somebody I've been, you know, like very, you know, like uh, suit and tie perfect guy. No, they hired a, a working class lawyer who had gone after, you know, kind of low level, you know, awful, you know, folks who, who basically ripped off people in the neighborhoods of New York City. And uh, his name was Ferdinand Pecora. And they, they put him in charge of investigating the biggest bankers in America. And the Pecora Commission, as it was called, called bankers and called uh, you know, the wealthiest people in the country before the US Senate and grilled them. And they created a record that ultimately led to prosecutions, to fines, uh, and most importantly, to a change in our, our financial laws and our, our banking regulations in this country, many of which things like Glass-Steagall became possible because of the accountability moment that Pecora created. And so uh, what I'd love to see is uh, uh, a Senate committee that was as serious as that committee was going after the coronavirus criminals and the pandemic profiteers. I would like to see members of the Trump administration, uh, governors, 
and billionaires and pharmaceutical company CEOs called before a committee. I'd like to see it on national television. And I'd like to see us really start to dig into this because the bottom line is people always say, how do we make change? You know, it's so frustrating. There are so many challenges. It's so difficult. Well, here's an answer to you. You give people the belief that they really can hold coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers to account. You give them that faith and you begin to move on that. We will not only hold them to account, we will usher in a dramatically different era in this country, an era where economic and social and racial justice become genuinely possible because the bottom line is accountability drives change. FDR knew that. The best of our leaders always have known that. It's time that we recognize that today and hold these people to account, not merely to punish them, but to change America so that we never end up in a crisis like this again. Powerful and inspiring end, John. Brilliant book, uh, combining history, uh, storytelling, uh, and a uh, philosophy of, of where we have to go from here. I hope everyone will get it. I hope you will continue uh, to speak out uh, with the clarity that you are to help us make sense of what happened and how we go forward. Thank you Thank so you. much, Congressman. And before we go, can I just uh, say that the Congressman has a book that comes out next week and uh, Dignity in a Digital Age. Is that, have I got the title right? You got it right, but we're, we're, okay. we're focused on yours today. <laughs> no, but I just want to make sure that uh, while I, I certainly think everyone should get two copies of my book, uh, they ought to get at least one of the congressmen's as well, because it is a brilliant book. I've, he and I have talked about it all the way through the writing of it. And uh, just as, as I think my book speaks to a reality of our moment, uh, his book speaks to a reality of, of where we are heading and where we could head as a just and, and fair country. And so thank you so much for for Really joining. enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Peter. Thanks well, to City Lights. Thank everyone for tuning in. Well, thank you thank both. You. Thank you, John Nichols, for your courageous work that speaks truth to power. Thank you, Congressman Rokana, for doing all that you do. And also thank you, everybody, for joining us. You helped complete the circle. Also, this event was made possible by the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, into the future. Thank you, everyone. Be safe. Be well. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.